Hello, this is Chris. Uh, welcome and thank you for watching. This is the third and penultimate class in my series, Jesus and the Law in Matthew, Set Aside or Set in Stone. So what have we considered so far? In the first class, we saw how Israel was effectively still stuck in exile because its sins were still unforgiven, um, the sins for which it had been sent into exile. And therefore, God's plan of redemption through it, uh, Israel, begun with Abraham, could not proceed to its conclusion. And then we saw in the second class how Matthew appears to present Jesus as Israel, as an embodiment of Israel, fulfilling in his life, death and resurrection, Israel's role in blessing the world, bringing Abraham's, the promise to Abraham to a conclusion. So the story of Jesus encapsulates and fulfills the Jewish scriptures. We saw that in the way that this, the gospel is structured by Matthew. And if the story of Israel was fulfilled in Jesus, if the whole narrative of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, if all that pointed towards a future fulfillment in Jesus, can the same be said of the law itself? Was the law pointing to a future fulfillment in Jesus? So this class is entitled Set Aside or Set in Stone. So we're focusing on the role of the law in the story of Israel and in Christianity today. And we've seen how Matthew appears to present Jesus as Israel, reliving the history of Israel. We could say Matthew has just edited Jesus' life in order to make this point. But we find Jesus' life running in parallel to the narrative story of Israel. And in doing so, we find parallel to the law giving on Mount Sinai, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And before we go into uh, an exegesis of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, I just want to look at this passage which occurs near the end, which is one of the passages used by uh, Hebrew Roots advocates to persuade us that we still need to follow the law. So we're familiar with, uh, it's Matthew 7, 21 to 23, we're, we're familiar with the, the beginning of this passage, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father. But it's the close of the passage that I want to focus on. I never knew you. Go away from me, you evil doers. The word translated here as evil doers is anomian. I don't know if that's a correct pronunciation. But the root word is anomia, and that can be translated as iniquity, disobedience, sin, or lawlessness. And that's the translation that Hebrew roots followers would advocate because it allows them to interpret this as a reference to following Torah. So their translation would be, away from me, you lawless ones. And rather than lawless, meaning a lack of morality, a lack of moral discipline, they would interpret it as being away from me, you who do not follow the Torah effectively. So then the, the main passage we're going to look at occurs near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And let's just read through that. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So on a read through like that, that appears to be a passage that quite strongly demands continuing Torah observance. But let's break it down. First of all, we need to consider some context. We've already seen how Matthew has presented the story of Jesus in his gospel as a demonstration that the law and the prophets pointed towards a fulfillment of Jesus. And Jesus himself said in chapter 11, verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until Jesus came. So it wasn't simply the prophets prophesying, but even the law prophesied. The whole Jesus probably means here the whole of Jewish scripture. Until John came, John the Baptist, whose role was to announce the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. So there's a turning point at John. And in parallel passage to the Sinai law giving, we have Jesus under his own authority preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he say? I have come, I do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So point to make here is that, as I've already alluded to, Jesus isn't simply talking about the law, the do's and don'ts of Torah. He's talking about a wider use of the scriptures. And he probably means here the law, the prophets and the writings. Law and the prophets was a way of summarizing that. Even on occasion, they would say Torah and mean the whole of Jewish scripture, the Tanakh. And then I want to think, think, I want us to think about the way that he starts off this phrase, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, because there's one other passage in Matthew where Jesus says, do not think, and that's in chapter 10, verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And yet we know one of the passages in the prophets, Isaiah 9, we see as being a reference to Jesus, he's called Prince of Peace. And when the birth of Jesus is announced by the angels in Luke 2, they sing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favours. And Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the peacemakers in chapter 5 verse 9. So the context is very important here. Jesus clearly did come to bring peace, but I think he's saying to people who know he is about peace, it's a warning that not everyone is going to accept this peace, which is between God and humans, and therefore there will be hostility from those who reject Jesus and reject God's offer of peace. So it's about the context. And so we have to accept that in a different context, Jesus may, may have said something different that appeared a contradiction uh, with regard to the law. And then let's think about the two things that Jesus is contrasting here. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. So Jesus is not contrasting keeping the law with not keeping the law. He doesn't say I've come not to abolish, but to keep the law. Rather, he's contrasting abolition with fulfillment. And we've already seen that fulfillment is a major theme in Matthew. Something pointed to in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is fulfilling what was pointed to in the Old Covenant, doing what Israel was incapable of doing. So I've got a couple of examples of things set in stone to illustrate what I think 
Jesus is saying here. So the first one is um, a stone which was produced by the Labour Party at great expense, £30,000 apparently, for the 2015 general election. And the idea was that all their manifesto promises were in this stone. And if they won the election, this would be installed in the garden of Downing Street, 10 Downing Street, as a, a perpetual reminder to the government of the promises they'd made, a way of saying, we'll, we won't forget the promises. Unfortunately, it was ridiculed by the press and um, became something of an embarrassment. So it was quietly uh, shoved into the background. And after the election, the Guardian newspaper decided to track down what had happened to it. And uh, they discovered that it had been um, stored at a stonemason's but subsequently had been dis, uh, destroyed by angry men with sledgehammers. In other words, this stone was destroyed by its makers because it was a symbol of humiliation. Uh, it was something that they regretted and uh, wished they'd never, ever produced. In contrast, we have this building here that you can see on the left. If you've ever seen any of the uh, Unforgotten series starring Nicola Walker and Sanjeev Bhaskar, um, a detective series, uh, you may recognise this building because this is what is used um, as their police station. And it strikes me as a strange choice. Historically, it's accurate because this did used to be a police station. And in the bottom right in the slide, you can see um, a doorway and the words police station carved out of the stone. But it strikes me as a strange choice despite that, because if you look at the, the building, it really doesn't look like a police station. In fact, in the series, they make it look by a police station by always parking police cars outside it and having a policeman or two walking up and down the steps. But other than that, it really doesn't look like it. And I can tell you that the internal shots, the office scenes were filmed elsewhere. And I know that because this is a police station where I was based. It used to be Bow Street Police Station in Covent Garden, directly opposite the Royal Opera House. The first two thirds of the building were the police station. The last third um, was the magistrates court. And why doesn't it look like a police station? Because typically British police stations have blue lamps outside. And when this was first opened in 1880, it did indeed have traditional blue lamps. But Queen Victoria visited the Royal Opera House, saw the blue lamps opposite, and she complained she didn't like it opposite the grandeur of the Opera House. And so they were changed to the white lamps that remain to this day. And so because it's a listed building, there were no garish neon signs or anything. So the only thing that told you this was a police station was that engraved those engraved words over the doorway. And I actually, um, one night duty, came down from uh, our meal break with a, a colleague and we stood in the doorway, discovered it was raining and we were thinking about where we could go to get out of the rain. And we noticed two men getting into a mini, which was parked on the opposite side of the road. If you look at the photo, you can see a couple walking past and uh, there's a man appears to be on a, a mobile phone. And just about there, there was a cutaway in the pavement where a few cars could be parked. And one of them was parked there by one of our colleagues. It was a Mini, which had seen better days. And we saw these two men who weren't our colleague getting into the Mini. So we waited until they'd got in and then we walked over and uh, had a very nice little arrest. All because they had no idea that this was a 
police station and therefore didn't take into account the higher than average chance that the car they were attempting to steal belonged to a policeman. So the point I'm making here is that uh, after a, a long history, this wasn't, there was a, a former building that was Bow Street Magistrates Court and Police Station. This one was opened in 1880, but closed after the force was moved to the new Charing Cross Police Station on the site of the old Charing Cross Hospital near Charing Cross Railway Station. But did it close down because it was an embarrassment? Was it bulldozed in shame? Clearly not, because they wouldn't be using it in the um, in the TV series. But this is what happened to it subsequently. I was amazed to and delighted to discover um, just before Christmas that um, having been empty since it closed in 1993, that uh, the station is now to be turned into a museum. In fact, it's now opened, it opened um, a few months ago. Uh, so it still says police station over the door. It isn't anymore. It's set in stone, but it is no longer a police station. However, closing it didn't mean it was an embarrassment and the Metropolitan Police regretted ever having opened it. Rather, it served uh, a vital purpose for over a century. And though no, no longer needed for its original purpose, its role is still to be celebrated. So the Met didn't send in the bulldozers to erase it. Rather, its history is to be celebrated as a, a museum. And like the name of the TV series, its role will be unforgotten. So what's the point? I think what Jesus is saying here is that he's not hostile to the law. Rather, what he will do through his life, death and resurrection is make much of the law superfluous or obsolete. He will enable Israel to leave exile so that it can move towards the covenant renewal promised by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So he's not negative to the law, he's just taking the story of Israel beyond where the law is required. Now a, uh, a tricky part of the passage in verse 18, for truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So here we see the implication for what Jesus is saying is that the law will remain intact in its entirety, not, not losing even a letter, not one jot or tittle, as it said in the King James Version, until heaven and earth pass away and until all is accomplished. So before we consider what all is accomplished and heaven and earth passing away might mean, let's think about some context, which I think provides a strong influence on our interpretation. So a major argument of the Hebrew Roots movement is to say that if we say the law is not permanent, we are effectively calling God a liar because time and time again in the Old Testament, it says the law is a lasting ordinance. However, that must be seen in the context of what Jesus says in chapter 24. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. He asked them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. The point here is that this prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple. And with it, the whole priestly system became obsolete. There has not been a high priest or a sacrifice since AD 70 
because the temple was no longer there in which these things were performed. So for nearly two millennia, a large part of the Mosaic covenant has been redundant. So if Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, then he knew much of the law would become obsolete, far more than not one letter, not one stroke of a letter. So Jesus surely wasn't contradicting himself or ignorant when he said this. We have to take it that Jesus' statement about not one letter, not one stroke of letter is all or nothing. You can't say that applies when the whole priestly and sacrificial system has gone. That's so much more than one letter or stroke of a letter. So the implication then is that at least by AD 70, when these parts of the law were made obsolete, that must mean that all was accomplished. So let's think now about the meaning of heaven and earth passing away, which is taken in the Hebrew roots movement to be a way of saying that it will never happen. Heaven and earth will never pass away. Therefore, this is never going to happen. The law will remain. And it is true that in Judaism, the word olam can be translated as world and eternal. But in this context, we're not talking about world, we're talking about heaven and earth. And I think this is best understood in a as being covenantal language. Heaven and earth describes the covenant relationship between creator and creation. The temple was the point at which heaven and earth met God's footstool. And the passing away of heaven and earth, I think, should be understood in covenantal terms as the passing away of the old covenant. So until heaven and earth pass away and all is accomplished would effectively appear to be saying the same thing. And I think what we're talking about here is the way that this kind of language is typically used in the Bible in apocalyptic terms. And normally it would mean something like the fall of an empire. So in Isaiah 13, in a passage prophesying the fall of the empire of Babylon, it says, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. It's language to describe not a physical reality, but something earth shattering, typically something like the fall of empire, or in this case, I think the falling of the old covenant replaced as it is by the new in Jesus. So let's think then about the what happens to the symbols of the covenant. There were three main symbols, the tabernacle, which became the temple, which as we've seen was destroyed in AD 70. Then there was the promised land and the Torah, the law. So let's go back to thinking about the temple. So in 701 BC, Jerusalem under Hezekiah was saved from capture by God. And that created a sense that the temple made Jerusalem invincible. And Jeremiah warns Judah against this false sense of security a century later and called Judah to repentance, um, warning that as God had divorced the northern kingdom, he could do the same with the southern kingdom, Judah. And in Malachi, chapter 3 verses 1 to 2 it says see I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight indeed he is coming says the Lord of hosts but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears so part of the continuing exile theme is that there's nothing in Jewish scripture or any other Jewish writing as far as I'm aware that describes God returning to his temple after he departs in Ezekiel. And here we see in Malachi a description 
following what we interpret as John the Baptist, that God will finally return to his temple. But the point is, it won't be a party atmosphere. He will be coming in judgment. Who can stand when he appears? Who can endure the day of his coming? And what happens days before the crucifixion, uh, Jesus enters the temple and he says, quoting Jeremiah, remember this paralleling of the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. And here at this point where Jesus is acting against the temple, he is quoting Jeremiah who had warned against the temple. He said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So what Jesus is doing is an enacted prophecy that goes hand in hand with his words in Matthew 24. It's an act of judgment on the temple pointing towards its ultimate destruction in AD 70. And then we have the Last Supper in Matthew 26, 28, where Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the temple is under judgment. Jesus condemns it in his actions, but then he replaces the role of the sacrificial system in the temple with his own blood. In other words, Jesus himself replaces the temple. One of the main symbols of the covenant is replaced by Jesus in himself. Now let's think about the promised land. So God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3 that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Habakkuk 2.14 it says, but the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in Psalm 2, which is perceived as a messianic psalm, verse 8 says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So as recognized in all these passages, the promised land wasn't enough to fulfill the scripture, the promises of what God would ultimately do. The whole earth was required to satisfy the promise to Abraham for the whole world to be blessed. So the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham clearly extends beyond the geographic boundaries of what was Israel, the promised land. And in the commission that Jesus gives that we looked at last time, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth, the whole of the earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make nations of all nations. So we've seen how the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. And we can see in the same way, the promised land pointed to a worldwide fulfillment in Jesus. The promised land was a partial taking back of the world uh, into a sort of Edenic state. But the end view was for the whole world to be in this situation. And rather than being defined by a geographic boundary, Jesus sends his people out to conquer the nations. So what then of Torah, if we've seen the temple replaced by Jesus, the promised land ceased to have meaning because Jesus is after the whole world. What then of the remnant of Torah? We've seen there is no longer a priesthood after AD 70. There's no longer a sacrificial system after AD 70. Much of the law has become obsolete. Why should what, be, what remains of the law be seen as being special, be seen as Hebrew roots advocates would say as being a way of living a life pleasing to God? That is what we're going to think about next week in the final class, renewed hearts, renewed covenant, which we consider the way the new covenant has been made in and through Jesus. Until then, thank you very much.